The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Thank you, and thanks everyone for joining us this afternoon. My name is Anne O'Reilly, and with me is Bill Migrant, Portfolio Manager for the Oakmark Fund and Oakmark Select Fund, as well as Alex Fitch, Portfolio Manager for the Oakmark Select Fund. Like in past calls, our format is to have Bill make introductory comments, after which we will open the line up for your questions. Based on the feedback we've received from you, we want to continue to have these calls be a transparent and open forum for discussion. To allow for that, if you have any comments to share, please submit those to our website. And if you have any questions, we ask that you please limit them to one per person so we can accommodate as many people within the given time frame. Before Bill begins, I want to remind everyone that manager commentaries and portfolio holdings have been updated for the first quarter and are available on our website, oakmarks.com. And now let me turn it over to you, Bill. Thank you, Anne, and thanks to each of you for taking your time today to get updated on Oakmark. The first quarter was a strong quarter for the market, with the S&P 500 up 7.5%. But it was very much a two-tiered market as growth stocks nearly doubled the S&P's gain and value stocks barely eked out a gain. What we've often referred to as a headwind for value over the past decade became a gale-force wind in the quarter, with the Russell Growth Index up 1,300 basis points more than the Russell Value Index. Such a large outperformance by growth has only occurred in three other quarters in the past 25 years, near the end of the dot-com bubble in 1999, during the great financial crisis in 2009, and then more recently in the COVID shutdown in 2020. The growth outperformance in Q1 wiped out nearly two-thirds of last year's value recovery. Despite the wind in our face, our funds performed well in the quarter, with Oakmark up just over 8%, surpassing the S&P by under a percentage point, and Select having a very strong quarter, up nearly 11%. Relative to S&P performance, Oakmark and Select's outperformance is due to good stock selection within financials. I'm joined on this call by Alex Fitch, who in addition to being co-manager on Oakmark Select, is our director of research and the analyst covering several of our bank holdings. In a few minutes, I'll turn the call over to Alex so that he can discuss the important role the banking sector played in the first quarter and how Oakmark took advantage of that. Before moving away from the first quarter, I want to add that relative to the Russell Value Index, our outperformance was largely due to our holdings in communication services, names such as Warner, Alphabet, and Netflix, and our lack of holdings in healthcare. I mention that because I also want to point out that this is a reversal from 2022 when those same positions hurt our performance. After a year of elevated activity in 2022, in response to unusually high market volatility, turnover in the first quarter returned to a more typical level, with Select adding Schwab to the portfolio and Oakmark adding Kroger and Truist Financial. So I think this is probably a good time to turn it over to Alex uh, to give him a few minutes to discuss what was arguably the most important uh, piece of information or 
market driver in the first quarter, the financial sector. Alex? Thanks, Bill. Uh, so as Bill mentioned, the big news during the quarter was, of course, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the panic that ensued. Uh, in our view, the troubles at Silicon Valley were really driven by a combination of different ingredients, none of which were deadly in their own right, but which became deadly when combined. Silicon Valley took on quite a bit of interest rate risk by stretching for yield in a low-rate world. Uh, and when rates rose, the losses on those securities, on paper at least, wiped out their equity value. They then combined those losses with little cash liquidity on the balance sheet and a very concentrated deposit base, focused in certain geographies and certain industries with very large uninsured deposit balances. And when those depositors started to panic, word spread quickly and SVB was forced to liquidate its securities and permanently impair its equity value. It's worth taking a moment to emphasize just how different our bank holdings are from Silicon Valley. Like most banks today, our banks have some mark-to-market losses on their securities portfolios, but each of our banks is solvent on a mark-to-market basis today. They're also mostly regulated as global systematically important banks, which means they hold far more liquidity on their balance sheets and more loss-absorbing capital. And most importantly, our banks tend to have very broad-based, diverse deposits with balances far below FDIC limits. So our holdings are significantly better positioned, in our opinion, than Silicon Valley was and may actually prove to be net beneficiaries of this crisis uh, due to the flight to safety of deposits towards the largest banks. None of that has stopped the market from painting with a broad brush. And the average U.S. bank's down something like 22% since the day before Silicon Valley's troubles came to light. Our bank holdings, with the exception of First Citizens, which strongly outperformed, uh, have only performed slightly better than the average bank. And this has created the disconnect between intrinsic value and market prices, and in our view, an opportunity for long-term value investors. We increased our bank holdings across products, and we added a handful of new positions in the industry. Uh, we bought Truist Financial in the Oakmark Fund. Truist is the sixth largest bank in the United States. It uh, has a very strong deposit franchise in Southeast markets, and it has a very valuable insurance brokerage subsidiary. And after stripping out that Billbridge business at fair value, uh, we believe we're paying less than five times normal earnings for tourists today. In Oakmark Select, we and Charles Schwab. Schwab's a company that we followed closely for some time and long admired for its uh, position as a low-cost player in the brokerage business. The shares sold off 36% after Silicon Valley collapsed uh, due to concerns about Schwab's mark-to-market losses on its securities. Uh, and in our view, overlooking the fact that Schwab has one of the stickier deposit franchises with almost entirely insured accounts across a very diversified customer base. And we believe we've been buying Schwab shares at just over 10 times our estimate of normal earnings. Finally, and most importantly for this quarter's performance, uh, one of our holdings in the Oakmark Select Fund, First Citizens Bank Shares, was able to take advantage of this crisis on our behalf by acquiring most of Silicon Valley Bank from the FDIC. Uh, this was an extremely accretive deal uh, that added hundreds of dollars per share to the intrinsic value of First Citizens in the moment and is a great example of how aligning with great management teams really stacks the deck in our favor 
uh, often leading to positive surprises that are just very hard to precisely envision at the outset. Uh, happy to go into more detail on any of those topics in the Q&A. Uh, and with that, I'll pass it back to Bill. Thanks, Alex. Before opening the call to questions uh, for either of us, I, I'd like to make two more uh, quick points. First, uh, we talked last year about how excited we were that the spread in PE multiples remained unusually high despite values outperformance in 2022, and we believe that created a better-than-normal opportunity set for stock pickers like us that are very price-conscious. I'd just point out that growth's strong relative performance in the past quarter only widened that spread and increased our enthusiasm for the opportunity set uh, in front of us. Second, uh, it wouldn't be an Oakmark call without mentioning taxes. Uh, we are more tax conscious than most of our open-end fund competitors. And with our tax year now nearly half over, I'm happy to report that we are well on our way to another year that uh, should not require a capital gain distribution. And with that, operator, could you please open the call to questions? Bill, while we wait for questions to come in, can you please share what attracted the team to buy Kroger? Sure, thanks, Anne. Um, yeah, Kroger is a pretty traditional value name uh, that for a long time has sold at a discount PE to the S&P 500. Uh, currently, it's uh, just under 10 times expected earnings for this year. So I guess that puts it about two-thirds of the market multiple, maybe a touch under. has a greater than 10% free cash flow yield. And uh, we just think it's a much better business than most investors do. Uh, I think throughout my career, uh, there have been uh, early obituaries written for Kroger. Uh, first, it was that Walmart and Target getting into groceries was going to destroy the, the business for the traditional grocers. Then it was Costco and Sam's. Then the non-union uh, sellers, such as Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, uh, private label producers like Aldi. Then Amazon uh, and the online shopping business. But despite all those things, over the past decade, uh, Kroger has doubled its sales per share and more than tripled its earnings per share. The specific event that uh, has led to uh, kind of the disruption in Kroger's price recently, uh, in October they announced the acquisition for $25 billion in cash of Albertsons, uh, another very large groceries uh, company. And the FTC, uh, as it has been doing on lots of large acquisitions, has been standing in the way of this merger getting completed. Uh, we feel like we can win either direction here. Uh, if the deal does get approved, uh, the synergies on the deal alone add about a dollar a share to Kroger's reported earnings. And if the deal is blocked, uh, Kroger has been stockpiling cash in anticipation of this deal, and they could buy back about 30% of the outstanding shares of the company uh, before they'd be hitting their debt level targets because they've had such a cash-heavy balance sheet. So either we see a bounce in earnings per share of something over 20% or a very large share repurchase. Uh, and it's a stock that's already cheap without either of those things. And another thing we like about it is it's a business whose results uh, aren't, aren't tightly correlated to other parts of our portfolio where we're invested heavily. 
uh, like banking and energy. So uh, a very traditional value name uh, that, that we think is actually a very, very good business. Operator, do we have any questions? Yeah. Hi, Bill. Can you talk about how you're thinking about the uh, your the Amazon valuation? I, I know as a value investor, you're probably not using a PE ratio, but uh, just wanted to get an update on on how you're thinking about that valuation. Sure. Um, I think we've we've tried to make the point uh, over the past several years that our definition of value is a little bit more inclusive than the traditional value investor who chooses to define value as only very low PE or very low price to book. We think that there are a lot of, especially the newer businesses, where the growth spending isn't in bricks and mortar. It's not building a new factory that would go on the balance sheet and then get expensed over the useful life of that asset but rather it's in investments that go straight through the income statement because they, don't, they aren't things that you can touch and feel. It's, it's R&D, it's investments to grow the scale of the company, to, uh, to grow the gr global reach of the company. And Amazon is one of those businesses where, you know, on a, first it doesn't have that much equity, so it looks really expensive on price to book. And on a PE basis, I think it's at least two or three times what the market multiple is. Uh, but we think that that misses the point. There are two really important businesses inside of Amazon, and neither one does a PE fairly uh, explain the value in, in the company. Uh, first, you have the traditional Amazon business, uh, lack of a better term, just a, a traditional retailer. And if we put a multiple on the gross market value of their sales that's consistent with bricks and mortar retailers, that alone would get you almost the current price of Amazon, about $100 a share. Uh, Amazon doesn't report the same kind of profit margins that bricks and mortar retailers do, but that's largely because they're continually investing for a business that's going to be significantly larger next year. Uh, and your, your average bricks and mortar retailer is struggling to keep its business flat. Uh, if you believe that Amazon could increase its prices by about five or six percent, and the cost of doing that would be that their sales wouldn't grow much in a year other than that price increase, that would allow the retail side to earn margins that are consistent with, with bricks and mortar retailers and we think would give the stock market a, a clearer path to valuing it at something like $100 a share. Uh, we think they're making the right decision to reinvest because rather than reporting one year of, of good income, they're increasing the scale of their retail business by about 20%. So in addition to that, and further complicating the, the income statement, is their Amazon Web Services business, the, the cloud uh, computing business, AWS. And AWS is also investing very heavily through the income statement to support really rapid growth. Other cloud computer, computing uh, companies sell at about 10 times revenue. Uh, if you capitalized Amazon's cloud computing revenue at eight times revenue, 
that would also get you about $100 a share. So the way, we, the way we're looking at it, uh, we're either paying a fair price for AWS or a fair price for retail, and we're getting the other business for free. And, and to us, that's, that's a pretty attractive opportunity. Okay, that, that's helpful. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Um, hi, Bill and Alex. Maybe getting back to the banks, um, maybe you could elaborate. So while the prices have corrected 25%, um, sometimes more, sometimes a little less, how do you look at, you know, the fundamentals? Because, you know, I guess one where you would be the income statement, right? So how much they can make in this kind of environment versus before. And the other would be on the credit side with such things as, you know, commercial real estate and whatnot. And is, has, has that, have you brought back expectations on that? to the point where the stocks now still look attractive? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, so there's, I certainly agree with the idea that um, there's some problems on, on the credit side and obviously a lot of concerns by commercial real estate. Uh, in general, across our bank holdings, uh, they, are, they have smaller than average exposure to commercial real estate. And that's partially because commercial real estate exposure is predominantly uh, in the regional banking industry, and then that the regional banks that we've purchased have below average commercial real estate exposure for a regional bank. Um, the way we look at the banks, and, and I've looked at the banks for a long time, is, is to say, we know that there will be recessions. We know that there will be periods when, when credit becomes challenging, and there will be periods when there are very low credit losses. And the really important thing in thinking about this business as a longtime owner is understanding what that should look like on average. And so we put a lot of effort into the kind of normalizing those credit losses to look at mid-cycle. Uh, I think like a lot of investors, we, we probably overestimate how penal uh, a recession is. Uh, not every recession historically has been like 2008. Uh, not every recession losses uh, look anything close to as bad as they appear in the Fed stress test, but we tend to benchmark uh, to those types of indicators as a measure of conservatism to some extent. But on our mid-cycle estimates that kind of capture this occasional recession, the banks uh, still look very cheap today. More broadly, as far as how bank values have changed, I think the biggest potential impact to the industry in in, in the medium term is increased regulation, right? To what extent does the government, the regulators respond to the recent crisis with new rules and increased capital requirements? Um, on that front, I think that the majority of our bank holdings are actually reasonably well positioned. You know, for years we've been, I think, somewhat frustrated with how the largest banks have been excessively penalized relative to the mid-sized and smaller banks with higher capital requirements higher liquidity requirements, all kinds of limitations on what types of lending they could engage in. And it's compressed the returns, I think, for the largest banks. And today, given given how this crisis unfolded, the discussion's really being focused on regulating those smaller banks and leveling that playing field. And to the extent that the playing field is leveled, it should help the largest institutions. Uh, and you know, the, a lot of the scale benefits that they bring to the table 
they should be able to do a better job of taking advantage of. So I think we're we're very cautiously optimistic about how the regulatory uh, changes might impact our holdings. And I'd add just, just one other point that uh, I think something that's changed importantly relative to most of the past decade is we've kind of forgotten how incredibly valuable small retail deposits are for a bank. Uh, they don't have to pay rates as high as treasury bills on them. Uh, and because of that, the, effectively the liability is overstated on their balance sheet. When treasury rates are below 1%, uh, those retail deposits aren't worth much because you can't take that capital and then reinvest it at a significant premium. But in the world we're in today, where you can get a safe 4% return, uh, attracting retail checking accounts and even retail savings accounts is is creating a very valuable asset for the large banks. And the banks like Wells Fargo and, and Bank America uh, continue to gain more than their share of new checking accounts. And you know, everybody's concerned about the mark-to-market that you have on the asset side of the balance sheet from very safe bonds, but where they're, uh, they're going to be forced to earn below market rates for a few years uh, until that they can recycle that into bonds that uh, are producing a current level, uh, market level of yields. Uh, but they forget that the offset to that that has kept the banking industry alive for uh, multiple generations is that in environments like we're in right now, the, depo- the discount on deposits grows. So those, those deposits are worth significantly less than a dollar. And uh, I think when, when you really carefully try to mark both sides of the balance sheet to market, uh, I would say every bank that we own has a mark-to-market value that we think is higher than stated book value. Uh, operator, could we take the next question? Uh, good afternoon, Bill and Alex. Um, I just had a question about, uh, you mentioned the first quarter, which was very notably tilted towards the, the growth assets and, and you know the NASDAQ and the Qs. Um, would it be pretty unique for the last leadership group to lead the next recovery? It just seems almost too easy just to go back to those names. Of course, I'm you know talking your book and talking my book and, and having that outlook, but you're obviously able to buy value wherever you see it, but do you think we could just go back to growth and tech being the outright leader, or would that be a a unique situation historically? I I think through my career, which is just over 40 years long now, I can't remember going through a cycle where we were through we went through a significant decline, and then in the rally it was the same right back to the same group that had led previously. Uh, I suppose the debate you might get from some people that are growth stock champions uh, would would be that what we've been through maybe isn't as severe as a typical market cycle ending bear market. We try not to get uh, too far into the you know, market history and what's likely to happen or not happen. and really stay grounded much more in business values. And I just think it's it's almost impossible to come up with the valuation argument 
that would say the growth stocks that did so well in the first quarter deserve to lead uh, the market for multiple more years. Uh, you know, we, th we think that most of those stocks are already too expensive uh, compared to the universe that, that we traffic in more frequently. And then a, a follow-on to that, um, why do you think sentiment is so poor right now? I mean, obviously it's a great contrarian indicator, and then I saw the short interest is quite high right now amongst institutional investors, which is you know, another great contrarian indicator, but you can't turn on any financial media without seeing a strategist saying we're going to have a 10% correction or I'm bullish over the next two years, but not in the near term. Why do you think everyone is is so negative? And, and what do you think that portends for, you know, for, for returns? I mean, I'm, I'm only speculating here, but I think a lot of it is how much money people lost in 2022. Uh, and it wasn't just in the stock market, it was in the bond market as well. And the typical investor's reaction to losing like that is to pull back on risk. So they perhaps didn't get the benefit of the market recovery uh, that we've enjoyed for the past couple of quarters. I think the the Fed basically being charged with trying to induce a recession uh, certainly has has people properly concerned that the near-term economic environment might not be great. And, I mean, no matter which side of the political aisle you sit on, uh, I, I think you'd probably conclude that our current situation uh, is somewhat dysfunctional, uh, especially in terms of the candidates that are bubbling up to the top for, for national office in, in 2024. So I, I think the, the, the backdrop uh, invites people to be more negative. Uh, but as we've tried to point out in the past, I mean, you can make pretty negative arguments at almost any point in time. And I've put that list together a couple of times of the events that I thought were most negative each year since Oakmark's been in existence. And you read that list and you wonder how anybody can even survive those, uh, whatever it is, 30 years. And but yet the market's up, I don't remember, 12-fold or 15-fold since Oakmark started. There is always something to be afraid of, and people that talk a, a negative game sound more cautious, sound more prudent, maybe even sound smarter than those of us that just say it makes sense to be long most of the time because 70% of the time the market goes up. Right, right. Uh, and just la last uh, last follow on, um, obviously the the yield curve is is inverted here in the U.S. Um, here, do you see that leading us to a recession, or have we kind of already had one, or does it really even matter as as a stock picker? I mean, it must matter because it does have an impact on what kind of companies you'd want to lean towards. But do you think you know we're I think you made the comment before that once you know you're in a recession, you're almost out of it. But what's your take on, on the economy in general? It seems to be kind of bifurcated depending on what industry you work in. Well, I mean, if, I'll answer a, a few different parts of that question. Um, one, we, we try to think about what a company can earn five to seven years out, just like Alex was discussing with the banks trying to normalize for credit trends. We're trying to normalize industrial company margins, trying to normalize sales levels. 
to make sure that we aren't capitalizing a number that's either cyclically weak or unusually cyclically strong. So that's what really drives the bulk of our business valuation. You know, a recession will change our estimate of this year's cash flow or maybe even next year's cash flow, uh, but that's a pretty small number, rel a pretty small percentage of the total business value. So to us, uh, stock prices change a lot uh, with a lot bigger magnitude than business values do during a recession. Second, I would say I think it's fair to argue, did we go through a recession in the first half of last year or not? You know, by by the technical definition of two down quarters of GDP, uh, it, it was a recession. Uh, they chose not to call it that. Uh, that was kind of unusual to not to not say that was a recession because in the past, two down quarters has created uh, a definition of a recession. See, I'm trying to remember. There was something else before before that in your question. Just just the inversion of the yield curve. Oh yeah, yeah, I'll, and I'll just. You know, put 40 years of history on the table here. You know, when I started in the business in the early 80s and people talked about inverted yield curves, it would be like the short end at 15% and the long end at 8 or 9. So there'd be like, you know, 500 basis points plus between the long bond and, uh, and treasury rates. I have kind of a hard time getting too excited about an inverted yield curve where we're looking at maybe 50 basis points of inversion. Uh, I just don't think that drives important business decisions. You know, if you're trying to decide, do you, want, do you want to invest in a new product? Do you want to build a new factory? Uh, I, I don't think you're looking at 50 basis points of inversion as being an important part of your decision making. So I, I think uh, the media is obsessed by it, and investors just pay way more attention to that than business people do. Thank you very much for your for your perspective. Okay, well, uh, thank you all for for being on the call. Uh, hopefully, three months from now, uh, we we are seeing Alphabet's Bard prediction. Alphabet's Bard's prediction of the Cubs making the playoffs, looking like it was a good prediction, uh, and. Uh, Hopefully, we've uh, also seen somewhat of a reversal in the, this headwind that's been uh, a major impediment for value investors uh, showing good results, uh, not just over the past quarter, but over a lot of the past decade. So thank you all for, again for taking time for the call, and we look forward to talking to you next quarter. Important information. Average annualized total returns for Oakmark Fund Class I shares as of March 31st, 2023. Three month 8.10%, year to date 8.10%, one year minus 3.82%, three years 26.81%, five years 9.67%, 10 year 11.71%. Average annualized total returns for Oakmark Select Fund Class I shares as of March 31st, 2023. Three month 4.66%, year to date 4.66%, one year minus 22.74%, three years 4.86%, five years 1.93%, 10 year 8.35%. Average annualized total returns for S&P 500 registered sign. Indexes of March 31st, 2023. 3-month 7.50% year-to-date 7.50% 1-year-7.73% 3-years 18.60% 5-years 11.1% divided by 9-10-year 12.24%. Performance data listed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Total
greater or less based on differences in fees and sales charges. Performance for periods less than one year is cumulative, not annualized. Returns reflect changes in share price and reinvestment of dividends and capital gains, if any. Neither Natixis Investment Managers nor Harris Associates, LP provide tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax or legal professional prior to making any investment decisions. The index information contained herein is derived from third parties and is provided on an as-is basis. The user of this information assumes the entire risk of use of this information. Each of the third-party entities involved in compiling, computing or creating index information disclaims all warranties, including, without limitation, any warranties of originality, accuracy, completeness, timeliness, non-infringement, mercantility and fitness for a particular purpose. With respect to such information, definitions of terms used in this material S&P 500 index is a widely recognized measure of U.S. stock market performance. It is an unmanaged index of 500 common stocks chosen for market size, liquidity, and industry group representation, among other factors. It also measures the performance of the large cap segment of the U.S. equities market. P.E. Price earnings refers to the ratio of a stock's price to its earnings per share for the trailing 12 months. Does not include options. This excludes negative earnings. E&P refers to an exploration and production company, which is a specific sector within the oil and gas industry. GAAP. Generally accepted accounting principles refers to a common set of accepted accounting principles, standards, and procedures that companies and their accountants must follow when they compile their financial statements. EPS refers to earnings per share, calculated as a company's profit divided by the number of outstanding shares of its common stock. EBIT refers to earnings before interest and taxes and is a measure of a firm's profit that includes all incomes and expenses. Operating and non-operating except interest expenses and income tax expenses. EBITDA refers to earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization and is a metric used to evaluate a company's operating performance. It can be seen as a proxy for cash flow. FANG is the acronym for four high-performing technology stocks in the market Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Google, now Alphabet, Inc. SAS stands for the Statistical Analysis System, a software system for data analysis and report writing. SAS is a group of computer programs that work together to store data values and retrieve them, modify data, compute simple and complex statistical analyses, and create reports. Negative real rate means that the inflation rate is greater than the nominal interest rate. REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust, is a company that owns, operates, or finances income generating real estate, modeled after mutual funds. REITs pool the capital of numerous investors. This makes it possible for individual investors to earn dividends from real estate investments, without having to buy, manage, or finance any properties themselves. SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Company, is a company with no commercial operations that is formed strictly to raise capital through an initial public offering, IPO for the purpose of acquiring an existing company. Russell 1000 Growth Index is an unmanaged index that measures the performance of the large cap growth segment of the U.S. equity universe. It includes those Russell 1000 companies with higher price-to-book ratios and higher forecasted growth values. Russell 1000 Value Index is an unmanaged index that measures the performance of the large cap value segment of the U.S. equity universe. It includes those Russell 1000 companies with lower price-to-book ratios and lower expected growth values. Discounted cash flow DCF is a valuation method used to estimate the value of an investment based on its expected future cash flows. An exploration and production. ENP. Company is in a specific sector within the oil and gas industry. Exploration and production is the early stage of energy production, which includes searching and extracting oil and gas. R&D is an abbreviation for research and development. NFT. Non-fungible tokens are unique cryptographic tokens that exist on a blockchain and cannot be replicated. ESG or environmental, social, and governance criteria are a set of standards for a company's operations that socially conscious investors use to screen potential investments. Return on equity. RO. Is a measure of financial performance calculated by dividing net income by shareholders' equity. Top 10 holdings. Percent. For the Oakmark Fund as of March 31, 2023. Alphabet CLA 3.90% KKR 3.42% Oracle 2.95% Amazon.com 2.68% Salesforce 2.66% Wells Fargo 2.52% Meta Platform CLA 2.47% Citigroup 2.45% Capital One Financial 2.41% Intercontinental Exchange 2.38 Top 10 Holdings Percent For the Oakmark Select Fund as of March 31, 2023 Alphabet CLA 10.85% Oracle 7.34% Salesforce 6.88% First Citizens BCS HSCLA 6.84% CBRE Group CLA 6.01% Lithia Motor CLA 5.87% KKR 5.68% Amazon.com 5.67% Intercontinental Exchange 5.08% Capital One Financial 4.90% The Portfolio 
portfolio is actively managed and characteristics, holdings or sectors are subject to change. References to specific securities or industries should not be considered a recommendation. For current characteristics, holdings or sectors please visit our website. All investing involves risk, including risk of loss. For Oakmark Fund Class I shares, the gross expense ratio is 0.89% and the net expense ratio is 0.89%. As of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded. This arrangement is set to expire on January 27, 2024. When an expense cap has not been exceeded, the gross and net expense ratios may be the same. For Oakmark Select Fund Class I shares, the gross expense ratio is 0.98% and the net expense ratio is 0.98%. As of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded. This arrangement is set to expire on January 27, 2024. When an expense cap has not been exceeded, the gross and net expense ratios may be the same. Fund risks. Oakmark Fund and Oakmark Fund. Equity securities are volatile and can decline significantly in response to broad market and economic conditions. Value investing carries the risk that a security can continue to be undervalued by the market for long periods of time. Concentrated investments in a particular region, sector, or industry may be more vulnerable to adverse changes in that industry or the market as a whole. Foreign securities may be subject to greater political, economic, environmental, credit, currency and information risks. Foreign securities may be subject to higher volatility than U.S. securities, due to varying degrees of regulation and limited liquidity. These risks are magnified in emerging markets. Oakmark Select Fund. Non-diversified funds invest a greater portion of assets in fewer securities and therefore may be more vulnerable to adverse changes in the market. Before investing in any Oakmark Fund, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, management fees and other expenses. This and other important information is contained in a fund's prospectus and summary prospectus. Please read the prospectus and summary prospectus carefully before investing. For more information, please call 1-800-OAKMARK-625-625. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed are as of April 13, 2023 and may change based on market and other conditions. Diversification does not guarantee a profit or protect against a loss. Natixis Distribution LLC, member FINRA SIPC, is a marketing agent for the Oakmark Funds, a limited-purpose broker, dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Pod 61 April, 2020. 23. Add tracks ID 1478442301. Expiration date July 31st, 2023.